But one thing the French had learned from Cressy, they had learned to get off their horses. And their army was in three, what they called battles. Division would be the sort of nearest thing today. And the first two battles, anyway, were going to fight on foot. They thought, again, that this was been a, an affair of breakfast. And they knew the threat from the longbow. I mean, this, this was the threat. And they'd learned that at Cressy. But ha-ha, this time they have developed a form of armour for the horses. So they've given the horse a metal mask and a metal breastplate. And they think that if on the flanks, because the English longbowmen are on the flanks, if they charge the longbowmen with their cavalry, which are armoured, then there's nothing that the archers can do. Hello and welcome to this week's pod and it's the second part of our Hundred Years War special and Gordon Corrigan returns to talk the Battle of Poitiers. You can find part one on Cressy, which was back in April when Gordon and I began the series. Today we chat Cressy's aftermath, the Black Death, the Black Prince and of course the battle itself. We also address the small matter of large amounts of cash owed by France, which you'll not be surprised to hear is a bugbear of Gordon's. Coming up, I've got part two of my Parthenon Marbles debate, The Other Side. The Film Club is out on Tuesday with Munich, Steven Spielberg's 2005 epic. And there's plenty more great history to come, including the British Empire, women spies and Vikings abroad, plus much, much more. Please do share with friends and rate and review if you can. In the meantime, I'm going to hand you over to Gordon and I discussing the Hundred Years' War and the Battle of Poitiers. Gordon Corrigan, welcome back. And you're here to talk about the second week. The first part uh, that you joined me to talk about was, was for the Battle of Cressy in our first part for the Hundred Years' War, our, our epic series on the Hundred Years' War. Now, that was back in April. And we're here to talk about Poitiers because you've just written a book on the Battle of Poitiers. So welcome. Thanks, Gordon, for joining me again. Delighted to do so, Oliver. It's very good to talk to you. Well, the Battle of Poitiers, which was in 1356. Now, I think it's helpful for the listeners. Now, for any listeners out there who haven't listened to part one, I really do encourage you to go and listen to part one first. And then part two will make a little bit more sense. But Gordon, when when we left our listeners, and I think we had a dwindling number of French listeners, rather like the ragged army, the French army after the Battle of Cressy. So there are very, very few left, but they've stuck with it. They're, they've persevered. They want to carry on listening to a, a another catastrophic defeat for the French, which is the Battle of Poitiers. But before we get there, where are we? When we last spoke, Cressy had ended. It was a glorious victory for for England. But what then happened? Because obviously there's about a 10-year period. Well, there is a 10-year period between Cressy and Poitiers. Well, we've had the Battle of, of, of Cressy, which, as you say, was, was a great victory. It was the first major land battle. I'm not counting Sluice, which was a land battle fought on ships. Uh, so, so Cressy really was the first major expedition onto French territory. 
Uh, a great victory. Um, again, this revolution in, mini in military affairs, which has come about where the, the English are fighting on foot uh, with the missile weapon, the, the, the archers on the flanks in support. They march off after Cressy. Uh, they then lay siege to Calais. Uh, now, Calais as a city wasn't terribly important. What it was, though, was a nest of pirates. Who, who preyed on the English wine trade going from Bordeaux to England. So Edward III thought, very sensibly, let's grab it, uh, which they did. Um, and of course, Cressy then, uh, Calais rather, then remained English, of course, right up until 1558 when it was lost by uh, Mary, or during the reign of, of Mary Tudor. She she actually died that, that same year. Um, and then, of course, the plague hits, Black Death. Um, it gets to England in 1348, uh, having already started to ravage Europe. It gets to England probably on a ship from Bordeaux carrying wine uh, to Weymouth, and then it spreads up through England and into Scotland. Uh, and as the chronicler at the time said, it moved at the pace of a walking man. Now, this was a Awful disaster. When you think that in the First World War, Britain lost something like 1.6% of our population and people say it was a loss of a generation and a terrible disaster. It wasn't the loss of a generation. That, that's a different argument. The Black Death, we were taught at school all those years ago uh, that it killed 30% of the population of, of England and Europe. We now know from more archaeological evidence um, and, and more accounts that have come to light, that it eliminated, it killed off 50% of the population, and in some cases, 60%. So this is up. It's unfathomable, awful. Gordon. It, it yeah. is. It's awful. Um, and what was the population of England? Well, the, at the population of England then, we think, and we don't know exactly, but but we think it was about eight or nine million. So it's, it's come right down. It's come down to sort of three and a bit. But... In a funny way, it it has a, a good side if you survive <laughs> because there's the same amount of money around, but not a lot less people to, to use it. Uh, it meant, for example, that labourers could establish their own fee. Uh, you know, previously, really, the, the labourer or the artisan was in the hands of whoever employed him, and he really couldn't argue about it. Um, now he could say, I want 10% more or I'll move. I'll go next door. And of course, he yes, because we're in a sort of surf like situation. But as you say, what? So the Black Death essentially changes the economics. Yeah. And now the power yeah. is with the worker. Well, more power is with the worker. I mean, the government brought in all sorts of regulations to try and stop this. But I mean, they failed. Uh, people, people could move about. The effect in France was much worse than it was in England, although the proportion of the population eliminated was the same but england was a united country and it had it had an administration for the whole country that more or less worked uh it never broke down completely uh whereas in france of course as we know uh the king of france only ruled directly the ile de france the, the area around paris the rest of the country that's what we call france was a whole lot of, of a number of duchies who all of whom owed fealty to the king of france but they had a hell of a lot of autonomy. So there wasn't a universal system of administration. And therefore, and of course, 
with the number of nobles who were the government, uh, who'd been killed at Cressy, the, the effects were, were much, much worse in uh, France than, than it was in England. So that's and it's a similar of, death rate, presumably. Similar death rate, yep. Similar death rate, we think, uh, between 50 and 60%. Um, one quite good way of, of looking at it is if you go into a, one of our medieval parish churches and you look at the list of, of vicars and look start looking at the lists from 1347 onwards, whereas before that you'll have the same chap who's maybe there for 10 years, 15 years, suddenly you find three in one year, four in one year, five in one year. Unlike COVID, when the church is closed, which I think is wrong, during Black Death, the churches remained open because they were they were there to minister to the, to the population. But it did mean that the poor old priests uh, had a very high death rate because they're dealing with these people, they're catching it themselves, they're snuffing it, someone else is brought in. And, and really, it was, it was an appalling, appalling situation. Yes. Well, it, I mean, he's I... coming back. I mean, it comes back. Uh, it comes back about 18 months later, not as bad because an immune, some sort of immunity is starting to build up. And then it comes back again and again and again. But as time goes on, when you get it coming back, of course, the, the, you eventually get effectively herd immunity and it's not having anything like that effect. But that first plague, I mean, it was absolutely uh, appalling. And the symptoms of the of the plague is it similar to the Great Plague we see in the seventy in sixteen sixty six in London with you know the rather nasty sores and and pussy um, boils all over your body? Yeah, it's it's similar. I mean, I don't think people have yet established definitively that that the Black Death, the the thirteen forty eight plague, and the the one that was eventually sorted out by the Great Fire of London were exactly the same although the symptoms do appear to be the same. But there's such a long period between Black Death and the 17th century plague that perhaps whatever immunity there was may have simply been worn off or gone. And it certainly would appear to be the same the same thing, although we don't, I don't think we know for, for certain. But it meant that there was very little military activity for that period because both countries are trying to recover from it. And the only military activity really um, was... After Cressy, uh, the French said to their allies, the Scots, look, for heaven's sake, do something to divert the English away from us, because what are, what are they going to do next? And King David of Scotland thought, well, whoopee, um, all, all the English soldiers are in France. And he goes bowling down the Roman road. And of course, Edward had not taken every English soldier to France. In fact, he hadn't taken anybody from north of the Trent. So King David and the Scots uh, were, were met at the, the Battle of Neville's Cross, which is just north of Durham. Uh, they got a hell of a kicking, and poor old King David of Scotland ends up in the Tower of London. It didn't seem to make any difference to Scotland, who, who were pretty chaotic anyway, and they seemed to be able to cope perfectly well with, without a king. But the interesting, I think one of the interesting things about that is that um, there's a thing called the Chronicle of Lanarkost, now, Lanarkost is a priory on the Scottish border, Scottish-English border. And a monk of Lanarkost, we don't know his name, wrote an account, a contemporary account of this time when the Scots come bowling down out of Scotland in, in um, shortly after Cressy. And um, I thought, well, I'd better read that. Um, and off I go. And my problem, and I may have said this before, in which case you can cut it out, but the sources for the Hundred Years' War are Norman French, if you speak reasonably good modern French, which I do, Norman French is not a problem. 
Middle English, that's Chaucer's English, which, you know, we did a bit of that at school. Again, not a problem. If you know German, it, it helps. Old English, you really do need German. Uh, but Middle English is not too difficult. And I thought Latin, well, I've got a Latin O-level. The Latin sources won't be a problem. The problem is that medieval Latin had all sorts of conventions which weren't taught to schoolboys when I was doing my O-level Latin in 1958, whenever it was. But I managed to find translations of most of the stuff I wanted to look at. And I found a translation of the Lanikos Chronicle by a professor, Maxwell, which was published in, I think, 1910. And it had the English on one side and the Latin on the other. So I thought, whoopee. And then I got to a bit where the, the good professor says, the following bit is so disgusting, I am not prepared to repeat it or translate it. So it wasn't there in Latin as a gap and it wasn't there in English. So off I go to the British Library, clutching Latin dictionary and Kennedy's Latin primer and whatnot. And I say, could I, could I see the Lanacost Chronicle, please? And it's produced. Now, bear in mind that Maxwell's uh, translation wasn't, wasn't for the public. It was for academics, an academic document. And what it actually, the bit that he wouldn't translate, where the monk of Lanacost says that every time the Scots passed a church, King David went in and defecated in the font. No. I think it is most unlikely. Uh, the Scots were just... Yes, that's very unregal behaviour, isn't very it? Very unregal behaviour. And, and anyway, the Scots were just as terrified of the church as everybody else. So I think it's nonsense. But it, there's two interesting points to come out of it. First of all, it shows how much the monk of, monk of Lanacost hated the Scots. And if every time the Scots crossed the border, your priory got burnt down they killed and ate your pigs and drank all your wine and off they went you probably would uh, hate the Scots. the other interesting thing is that again going off the subject slightly but 1910 too disgusting move on five years 1915 when i was researching for my uh, book about the indian corps on the western front and i wanted to see how the public have viewed indians because is that sipoy in the trenches that yeah that the title of that book that, yeah. that's right and, and unless you lived in a port you had never seen, seen a brown man, a black man. So I wanted to see what the public thought. And the Indian military hospitals were in Brighton. So I read all the local. I went to the Collendale, a wonderful newspaper library in, in London, Collendale, and, and got out the local papers for all, all the, the 1915. And unfortunately, which always happens when you're looking through old newspapers, you find something that's got absolutely nothing to do with what you're supposed to be researching. But it's interesting. And I found an account of a paternity order taken out by a housemaid against her employer, the vicar. And this went on. This trial went on for, for weeks. So I was, next copy, next copy, next copy. Um, nothing to do with the Indians. And, um, but the point I'm making is that the accounts of the evidence, if you published it today, you'd probably be done under the Obscene Publications Act. Because they were absolutely, uh, I mean, this poor girl was being absolutely ripped apart. By the lawyers. By the lawyers, yeah. I mean, she was asked to describe what, what the vicar's genitalia looked like. And they were trying to find out whether it was excited or whether it wasn't. And all this detail, I thought, well, you wouldn't get away with that now. And compare that with five years previously, when you couldn't say the king had defecated in a form. So, you know, stand, standards change. But so apart from that, apart from that Scottish raid at, attempting to take the attention of the English away from the Scots. There really is no military, there's very little now uh, until the, the Poitiers expedition. There are some raids, the garrison of, of Calais. There were a number of, of 
unsanctioned ones where, where an, a young officer got fed up, got bored uh, and thought, let's go and capture a, a French castle or something. And a certain amount of that goes on. But there's no major military effort uh, until Poitiers, which is 10 years later. And what about the two crowns at the time, uh, the, the crown of France, the crown of England? We still, from Cressy, we had uh, Edward III, of course, fighting with the Black Prince. Black Prince was, I think, only 16 at Cressy. Now he's obviously 10 years older or uh, and becoming a kind of fine stallion of a man, isn't he? Yeah, he's um, now 26 and he's he's now commanding the army. Uh, the king doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, come across this time. Um, Edward, uh, the Black Prince, uh, he takes an army of of five thousand, which is three thousand archers and two thousand infantrymen, uh, plus a certain amount of supporting arms. Um, and again, that the claim, of course, to the throne is still there, and um, it's it's Jean the second of of um, of France, and again, what he wants is a battle. If he if he can get a ma- a big battle and completely destroy the French army, then perhaps he'll bring the war to an end. And and he, I think that's what he was hoping to do. He carries out a chevesee to begin with, which is a, a raid out of Aquitaine, across France and back again. Because um, Aquitaine's in his uh, yeah. control at this time. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, Aquitaine, as you know, um, the great argument with Aquitaine was, does it belong to the King of England as of right? Absolutely, as the English claimed. Or does the King of England hold Aquitaine as a vassal of the King of France, which which is what the French claimed, and and there was a lot of toing and froing and arguing uh, over that, um, and Edward um, finds, as indeed was a standard English tactic at the time, you you find a position that suits you. And you remember at Cressy, they find a, a ridge line. They could anchor both flanks. He does the same thing at Poitiers. It's actually about eight miles south of south of the town of Poitiers, um, and it's a, it's a, a ridge line, and it's anchored by a river on, on each side, so nobody can outflank him. Infantry lined up in the middle, um, archers on on each side, and and he waits um, for the French to come and attack him. Um, because it's exactly we, the same as Cressy. Exactly the same as Cressy. Now, the one thing that they... I think that there's, there's, there's an important change since Cressy, as far as the English are concerned. At Cressy, most of the army was mounted, but not all. Um, by Poitiers, the whole of the army is mounted. Everybody's on a horse. So the army can move swiftly, but they fight on foot. So when the you The French stop, army? No, no. Sorry, the English army. The English army is entirely mounted, but which most of them were mounted at Cressy, but not all. And as the Cressy campaign went on, of course, uh, more and more men got mounted because they picked up horses from from the French. Uh, by Poitiers, everybody's mounted, so the the English army moves on horseback. It's it's mobile, uh, but it fights on foot. So of course you've got um, a lot of farriers. And in those days, the farrier was the veterinary surgeon as well. Uh, and, and you've got all the, the, the question of, of fodder for the horses and everything else. And if you think um, he's got 5,000 men plus hangers-on at Poitiers, um, that's probably in the region of 6,000 horses, which have got to be tethered and looked after and fed and, and 
all the rest of it. So, so that's a big administrative commitment. Um, but, but that's what we know. He's found a He's found this ridge. Um, there's a a which the contemporary French chronicles say is a very bad road, and as all roads in France were very bad, this really must have been a very bad road indeed. Um, uh, running running straight up through the middle of um, of of his it's it's a farm track now. I mean it's it's still there. The French way outnumber them now. Again, accounts vary, and most of them are exaggerated. Realistically, I think it's probably three to one. I think the French army was probably around about nine or ten thousand. Um, although some of the accounts put it as much greater, but it's a question of how big an army could you keep in the field um, then, and uh, probably nine or ten thousand would be the most you could do. They is that is that partly down to? Sorry to interrupt you there, Gordon, but is that partly down to the Black Death, the fact that? You know, readily access to foodstuffs wouldn't be easy for anything more than ten thousand. Well, even without Black Death, there's a limit unless you've got a sophisticated logistics setup, which nobody really had. There was a lot of living off the land. Uh, is there enough grass for the horses, uh, etc.? All all these sort of factors come in, and and there is a, there is a limit. Um, you know, if you have too many people, well, there isn't enough grass for the horses. There isn't, you can't purchase or sequester food on the way. It's, un, I think, unlikely that you could keep many more uh, in the field than that. But one thing the French had learned from Cressy, they had learned to get off their horses. And they had, their army was in three, what they called battles. Uh, division, I think, would be the sort of nearest thing today. Um, and they were now going to fight, or the first two battles anyway, were going to were going to fight on foot. They thought, again, that um, this this would have been a, an affair of breakfast because, and they knew the threat from the archers, but they thought, oh, oh. The longbow, the longbow. Longbow, yeah, the threat from the longbow. I mean, this, this, was, this was the threat, but... And they'd learnt that at Cressy. But ha-ha, this time they have developed a form of armour for the horses. So they've given the horse a metal sort of mask and a sort of metal breastplate. And they think that if on the flanks, because the English longbowmen are on the flanks, if they charge the longbowmen with their cavalry, with which are armoured, then there's nothing that the, the archers can do it's not quite true because the uh, being hit with an arrow in armor if it hits you in the right place will probably knock you off your horse uh, but but certainly they thought you know this, this is the way to get rid of the longbowman uh, unfortunately when they tried it um the commander they tried it on the english left flank to begin with and the commander of the archers then simply said left turn right wheel quick march and uh, i mean oh, the equivalent and they simply got the archers round to the flanks. Well, of course, the horses weren't armoured on the flanks. So they were able to, to see off the, that, that cavalry. Um, the French cavalry commander on the other flank, he, seeing his chum going for it, he went for it as well, and exactly the same result. Uh, so that, uh, good idea, but it didn't work. Well, well, you always make me feel rather sorry for the poor old French cavalrymen as they they think, they, they, they ride into the attack with such great confidence 
yep. at both Cressy and Poitiers. Mm. And it's the longbow each time. Yeah, it is. And you see, I know what you're going to say. Why on earth didn't the French copy it? Well, the, the answer is that they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't was because of their social structure. Um, they were on, I mean, and there were French soldiers who thought, you know, who said, look, the, the problem is, is a longbow. That, that's what we've got to do something about. So why don't we train people up? Um, and there's, there's a number of objections to that. One is that it takes time to develop the muscles and everything else. But the real reason was French society. Um, the French belief was, rightly, you dare not arm the lower orders, because if you do, they might turn against you. Now, in England, that wasn't going to happen. England was essentially, at this period, a contented country. Um, they, they had a king that they respected. The government was not overly corrupt or, or overly oppressive. Um, and people were, were pretty content with where they were. And of course, militarily, it was a, a tremendously mobile society in England. I mean, there are people who start life as archers, private soldiers, who end up commanding armies, being a noble. You know, so, so, so it, is a, it is a mobile society. And it's, it's, it's a content society. So the lower orders, the archers, um, being armed wasn't a problem. In France, they don't do this. Uh, this was their belief. Uh, which, of course, after Poitiers uh, proved to be absolutely right, um, without, without harming them, when the, when the Jacquerie get going. Um, so it was simply impossible for, for French society to accept copying the English, uh, although they knew that, that really the, the only way to beat them was to join them. What they did do much later on, not at this period, much, much later on, was they developed artillery. Um, they thought that that would be possibly an answer, which, which in a sense it was, if you look at the Battle of Castillon, much, much later, 1453. Um, but at this point, um, no, and they are constantly being slaughtered uh, by England's weapon of mass destruction, which they are continually ignoring and continually being, being slaughtered by it. Well, one piece of kit they had at Cressy, which didn't work because it rained, was their um, crossbow. And so did they employ the crossbow to any great effect at Poitiers? Not really. Um, the problem with the crossbow, of course, is that um, it takes a bloody long time to, to load. Um, and they did have largely mercenary crossbowmen. They had a few archers, actually, only a few. Um, but they were never really able to employ them properly because of this, this time it took to load. In a fortified situation, in a, in a castle or, or walled city, then crossbow was fine because you could line up three or four of them and have somebody, you know, you fire one, put it down, somebody loads it, you pick up the next one. That would work, but it wouldn't work uh, in the field. It wouldn't work in a sort of mobile situation. So um, they never they never really worked out what to do with the archers. Uh, they, 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 simply, they simply couldn't. And provided, I mean, as I think I've said before, um, really prior to Bannockburn, um, when, when actually the English did realise that disciplined infantry, properly trained, properly armed, could see off any number of, of cavalry, however well-bred the cavalrymen might be. Um, and, and the English knew that if they stood, I mean, they'd been trained, they're all armed the same way, they, their tactics are the same, they've been trained in it, they've got a chain of command, they know who they're 
platoon commander is, a company commander, the battalion commander, if you like. Um, and this wasn't the case amongst the French, which is still feudal. And if you're a nobleman turning up on your horse, uh, you're not going to be told what to do. You will decide how you fight. You'll decide how you equip yourself. Um, and there are always far too many commanders um, at, at, in a French army. And you quite often got, got um, you know, a couple of royal princes and the constable of France, um, all thinking that they're in command or all believing that they've got a right to be consulted or whatever. Uh, and the system just, just doesn't work. I mean, at Poitiers, the first division, I mean, what happened was that the English are on their ridge and about 75 yards, I suppose, there was a hedge. The hedge is still there. Well, it's not not always the same hedge, but the hedge is in the same place. Uh, and there was a carter's gap in the hedge, you know, so people get through. And um, when the cavalry had been seen off, uh, up came the first French battle, uh, and they closed in to get through the the um, the gap in the head. Hmm. And that, of course, gave the English a wonderful opportunity. And they were seen off. Uh, the second battle hardly attempted to stand. They thought, that's just no game of soldiers. And, and scarpered, most of them. The third battle was commanded by the king himself. And to, to his credit, he didn't scarper. Um, but again, the result, was the same. The, the king was actually captured. Um, a huge number, I mean, may, it could be as many as 2,000 nobles or, or people of importance were killed. Um, what annoyed the English particularly, or just reinforced their suspicion of, of the papacy, um, because it's not, you know, suspicion of Rome goes way before uh, the so-called Reformation. Uh, which was all about who can about control, not even theology. It's it's who controls England, who rules England. Is it the king or the pope? Um, and when uh, after Poitiers, the English discovered that they'd captured the Archbishop of Sens and thirty bishops, uh, all with the French. Uh, the British bought, I think, one bishop. I think the Bishop of Durham came along. Um, you know, and then this just sort of reinforced this this suspicion um, of of of. Rome and the papacy, and of course, when when the Pope was in Avignon, good good versus evil, maybe for them. Well, yes, I mean they probably wouldn't have gone quite as far as that, but um, but yeah, I mean the the papacy was always not terribly happy with England because England frequently didn't pay its its Peter's pence, which was a tithe that you had to pay to 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 Rome or to Avignon, depending. Um, and then you had the problem where there was there were two popes, one at Rome, one at Avignon. Well, who recognises what and and all the rest of it. So so that was that was long-standing suspicion uh, that, that that the English had. Um, and really, one of the major effects I think of Poitiers was not just the fact that it's yet another extraordinary uh, English victory, but it eliminates the government of France. Most of them. Uh, the government of France had taken a hell of a kicking at, at Cressy and they were just, and then they got the plague and they're just sort of recovering from that. And here at Poitiers, um, they're, the administrators, the government, they're, they're out of it. They're all killed or they're captured and held for ransom. And as you um, say, including the king. Including the king. And the king is carted back uh, to England where he is in very comfortable uh, accommodation. In I was going to ask you about that. Is this is he reclining on couches, drinking plenty of claret? 
Oh yes, he's he's very well looked after. Uh, I mean, you don't you don't mistreat a, a king. I mean, he he may be a usurper as far as the English were concerned, but he's still a still a king. And uh, King Edward used to take him hunting quite often and, and that sort of thing. They they look after him pretty well because they got King David of Scotland in there as well. But of course now there's the question of the ransom. And um, I mean, the term a king's ransom goes back to to Richard the First actually when. Uh, when the ransom that uh, England had to pay to get him back was enormous. And people talked about a king's ransom. Well, this time, of course, there's going to be an enormous ransom for the king of France. And it's laid down what it's going to be. Uh, and it's a lot. And um, they say... Do you know well, how much it was? Uh, I can't actually honestly remember. In today's... Except today's, that it was a hell of a lot. Yes, uh, because Richard's ransom was... Uh, well, it bankrupted the country, didn't it? Very nearly, yeah. Uh, and certainly, um, I think... Uh, Richard's ransom was something like ten percent of all movable assets and and property and everything else. I mean, it was it was it was a lot. And of course, the church—you always hit the church because the church is rich, and kings short of money could always have a crack at the church. I mean, it reaches its, its apogee, if you like, with Henry VIII when he the dissolution of the monasteries. What was that about? That was about getting hold of the plate and the riches and the land and everything that the that the monasteries owned. Um, so the the I found the amount, Gordon. Oh, did you? Well done. It's three million ecu. Ah, no idea what that is. Somewhere, I think in my book, I have said what ecus and marks and whatnot are, but I, I, I can't remember them off the top of my top of my head. Let us just say that it was an awful lot of money, uh, a considerable amount of money, um, and there was talk then of bringing the war to an end. But there is so much uh, chaos in France that really nobody can make that sort of decision. Um, and then you get uh, the, uh, eventually I may say King John is is sent back um, on the promise that the ransom will be paid. Now the ransom was never paid. And my argument, which no English politician would listen to, because they think I'm mad, um, when we left the third empire when we left the eu we we had the to pay a lot of money. EU, yes you know a lot of money i mean 32 billion or something like that so my point was well hang on they never paid the ransom for king john so that ransom plus compound interest for all those years way more than what we owe well gordon i, so I don't, don't think we should we should um drag brexit into this but <laughs> i i entirely agree with you that we should be pursuing france for yes the absolutely and, and anyway we're, we're king charles the third is the rightful king of france anyway in my view yes but, we we established that for <laughs> listeners in the first episode if yep. you go back and listen there you'll you'll know now that yep. it is king charles as actually we're speaking during his visit to france which has been a huge success and it seems as though the french people want him to be their monarch the French, actually, funnily enough, like royalty. I know they got rid of their kings in the revolution and then they brought them back for a bit and then got rid of them. Um, but but they do. I mean, a lot of their, if you look at their ceremonial, a lot of their ceremonial is uh, is royal. I mean, they, the the Garde Republicaine, they're wearing the same uniforms as they wore at Waterloo. You know, the, the French like that and they, they like royals. I, I'm not sure that, I think they... The last time they offered the crown, it was to the Duke of Artois, I think. And I think that was after 1870, I think. And I know the reason he didn't get it was that he insisted that the tricolor uh, is no more. 
um, because she said that was a symbol of revolution, and the French wouldn't agree that. Uh, but but they yeah they do they do like royalty, and and the present royal visit is going tremendously well. And I was listening to uh, the king's uh, speaking in French. His French is, is pretty good. It's very. His mother was very good at French as well. His mother was fluent. Actually, she mm. was very, very good. And I think fluent in German as well. Uh, of course, our royal family is German, if you go. I was about to say, Gordon. Yes, I'm nothing wrong with that. I'm all for it. So, uh, where were we? So, there's a huge, huge ransom. Now, in France, because so many of the government and the administrators have gone, uh, and there's real total upheaval, there's anarchy. And this gives rise to. to what's called the Jacquerie, because the most common name in French peasants was, was Jacques. And the Jacquerie rose against their masters. Um, and it was an appalling period. Um, I mean, people were just pulled out of the chateau and, and, and tortured and hung and disemboweled and mutilated. There, there is one awful account of a nobleman and his family who were simply pulled out of the chateau by their tenants. Um, the wife was gang raped and she was then made to eat her husband. They did at least roast him first, which I suppose is some concession. But this is the sort of thing that happened. So, and, the, and they hadn't been armed. So, so it does rather justify the, um, I'll give some credence to the French view that we, we can't emulate the missile weapon of the longbow because we dare not arm the lower orders um and it was it was an appalling period and really any chance there was of a treaty and the end of the war had gone because there was just nobody sufficiently in control and there were a number of internal coups in paris who was running the place and who wasn't um and the place was just just a, a total shambles um, and it took a long time uh, to get themselves reorganized again. Um, and then you got the Dauphin, uh, King John's son, who is in France. Uh, and King John is sending, Jean is sending messages from London, telling the the, the newly constituted government what to do. And the Dauphin disagreeing, and he's saying, no, we'll do something else. So no, there's no sort of decision-making power there. Um, and eventually, when they paid a bit of the ransom, uh, down payment of, I can't remember what percentage, wasn't very much, John is then allowed to go back with the promise that he will pay the rest. And the rest, of course, uh, as I say, uh, was was uh, was never paid. Poor form, poor form. The The... The Black Prince, who had commanded the army is often mentioned as as one of the great British or great English commanders. And I know we the last time you were on this podcast, we were talking Bill Slim and we discussed who were uh, who were Britain's finest commanders. Slim is is obviously the nomination from the Second World War. But for the Black Prince who had these it was involved at Cressy heavily, but and then and then masterminds this great victory at Poitiers. Mm. I know in our discussion, you you talked about Henry V as being a uh, a prominent ruler. You didn't mention the Black Prince when talking about the greatest commanders, and I would have thought the Black Prince, maybe more than Henry V, was a great a great commander. 
I I would go for Henry V, and the reason, um, and I'll. We can do that a little bit more when we we do Agincourt. But the Black Prince, um, there is argument as to why he's called Black. Um, When he, when Carcassonne um, rebelled at one stage, uh, he is said to have decimated the civilian population. I was killed one in ten. Um, that's not probably true. That, that's probably propaganda. But certainly he did... Carcassonne would be terribly loyal uh, to, to the Black Prince. And um, I think he felt particularly aggrieved that Carcassonne should, should rebel. And certainly his, he put it down with considerable ferocity. Um, now, is that why he's called Black? Is it the French that gave him the, 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 the sobriquet Black? Um, or is it because his armour was black? Um, well, his armour wasn't black, and, and the Victorians painted his armour black because they thought, well, the black has worn off. Uh, we're now pretty sure there's armour. In Canterbury Cathedral, we're talking. In Canterbury Cathedral, yeah. And and you've seen it there. I mean, his shield is there and his helmet and bits and pieces. Um, he, was not, he was not popular in uh, Aquitaine, uh, largely because of taxation uh, when he was campaigning in, in Spain because there might not be any fighting in, in France but there's there's fighting by surrogacy there's the Breton Wars of Succession as they're called and that's not a separate wars it's, it's the English supporting one claimant for the Duchy of Brittany and the, and the French supporting another and the same thing's going on in, in Spain and the Black Prince um, campaigned in, in Spain uh, so as a military commander absolutely Top-notch, no question. As a ruler and a politician, perhaps not so good um, in that um, he he did become very unpopular in, 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 in Aquitaine. Um, and this, whereas, you know, Henry V was, was actually quite popular with the French uh, because he was a, he was a, you know, a, a pretty reasonable ruler. But we'll talk about him when we, the next book, which I haven't started to write yet, but on on Ashing Core. Um, but I mean, you're obviously right. Black Prince, I mean, both his father and the Black Prince were, were excellent military commanders. And if the Black Prince hadn't died young, um, died before his father, then English history might be very different because we'd be spared the the um, the really very unpleasant period um, of, of um, Richard II who was not a good king. Um, he was, no, complete disaster. Yeah, I mean, he he was a very brave young man. I mean, he took on, uh, you know, the the, uh, the Peasants' Revolt. He was very brave over that as a kid. But, I think he was only uh, 16 at the Peasants' Yeah, Revolt. he was only a youngster. Um, Maybe even he, he was, a, and as you know, of course, ultimately, he's, he's murdered. Oh, he is, they say he died, but actually he was murdered by, um, by order of, um, Henry the Fourth. Uh, so Henry the Fourth, who was his cousin, yeah, cousin John of Gaunt, being of Gaunt. his uncle, yeah, and um, he who was called the Red Prince. Um, yes, he was by some, but um, again, was not quite sure where, where that sobriquet comes from. I had always thought, and I suppose this this is um, this corresponds with what you were saying about uh, the Black Prince in Aquitaine that his his mood was always dark. So he sounded like he was a bit of a miserable, miserable fellow. 
um, grouchy, uh, but you, you that wouldn't have been unusual, presumably. I, I don't think he was grouchy. I mean, I think um, he was quite good at jousting and all that sort of thing. Um, but one has to remember that, um, I mean, toothache, you know, they all had toothache. And, and, and all you could do with a sore tooth was pull it out. Um, they all had various aches and pains, which, which um, you know, afflicted them, which these days we'd take up paladin or, um, you know, whatever. Uh, things like malaria were endemic in Europe. Not now, of course. They, they were then. Um, dysentery. Um, I mean, we don't really know what the Blackburns died of, but it, it may have been dysentery, which follows all armies. Once, if, as long as you keep moving, an army was reasonably healthy. Once you stop, you get all sorts of problems, largely because they don't really understand hygiene. They don't really understand that cholera is spread by, you know, bad water. Um, they don't really understand that you shouldn't sort of crap in the field, crap in the river. You shouldn't throw rubbish down wells, that that sort of thing. Um, so, so there were all sorts, of, I mean, probably most soldiers of the day they probably all had worms. Um, they, they, you know, it was, it was, it was. Yeah. Well, he he died of dysentery, didn't he? So yeah, pro probably dysentery. It's, it's thought it was probably dysentery. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but but um, you know, these these things, these are sort of tipping points in history, if you like, because um, had he had he not died, I think he'd have got over his problems in Aquitaine. Uh, I think he would have been a very good king. And uh, of course, his son would have had time to grow up with his father's influence there. And and perhaps Richard II wouldn't have been a disaster uh, if um, if his father had lived. I mean, who knows? We, we, we don't. But but going back to your original point. Yeah. Uh, Black Prince, one of our finest military commanders, maybe not so good as a as a ruler then anyway, uh, or a politician. But Great stuff. Well, we'll talk about Henry V in a little bit more detail in our, our next episode on the Hundred Years' War with Gordon, talking about probably, the, well, certainly the most well-known of the three battles of the Hundred Years' War, Agincourt. Um, but Gordon, until then, thank you so much. It's been lots of fun learning about Poitiers and yet another French defeat. <laughs> yes, they are. The traditional enemy, I'm afraid. I, I may have told you this before, but um, at a dinner party with a French general in, in France, and after a great deal of claret from the general's personal set, they look after their generals a lot better than we do, and a lot of his cognac, he put his arm right there and he said, N'oubliez jamais, vous êtes l'ennemi héréditaire. Never forget, you are the hereditary enemy. And he was only half joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, one thing I should, in all fairness, mention is that in France, I think I'm right in saying that Poitiers has a slightly, the battle, of, when you say Battle of Poitiers to a Frenchman, they're probably not thinking of no, this battle. They're, they're thinking of Martel. They're thinking of the, the um, I can't remember the exact date, but um, much, much earlier battle where the Moors uh, are, are defeated. There are notice boards explaining the Battle of Poitiers and they're in absolutely the wrong place. They're nowhere near the battle where the battle actually happened. And they're talking about my Poitiers, but uh, the original Poitiers, the one that the one that the French will know about, is is in the same sort of area. And in many ways, it's 
almost more crucial because it stops the Moorish invasion of Europe. So it's an, in some ways, historically, it's a more important battle. Well, so to the Frenchman who's still listening, we've ended on a happy note in thanking the French for limiting a foreign invasion from reaching Northern Europe. I may say I get on very well with the French. I've got a lot of French friends. I love I like France. (laughs) And I like, they still have the long lunch in France, which is always a good thing. Yes, I know you're a big fan of that. Well, I think our listeners have learned to to detect that there's a slight tongue-in-cheek aspect to these. But Gordon, thanks very much as ever. Not at all, but good to talk to you. Well, if any of you out there can tell me what 3 million écus are in today's money, that would be marvellous. Thank you very much for listening. Plenty more great history to come. Please do share. Until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>